Today I'd like to look at a subheading of the prayer of agreement, which I, in which I deal with the topic of binding Satan. And I hadn't been a, in the charismatic community very long until one day a, a woman came into a facility I was in and she had her Bible under one arm and her purse under another and she was binding demons and, and, and Satan and she was speaking supposedly to demons that were hanging around on the rafters of the building. I, I looked at her and I, I'd never seen anything like it in my life and I thought, my, is this woman psychotic or you know what she got going? Well, I, I had a chance to talk to her a, a little later and, and I, I thought she was rather a reasonable person. And uh, she began citing certain scriptures as a reference point for the activity that she'd just been in. And, and as she did so, I thought, well, is that what those scriptures mean? And, and is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to uh, cast demons out of buildings and, and, uh, and you know, all this kind of thing? Well, since that time, I've had a chance to uh, study this, the topic a little bit, and I'd like to share with you today my perceptions of this business of binding out uh, devils and, and demons and speaking to the devil and all, and all that type of thing. First of all, I, I want to say this about what I'm about to share. I think the problem is that uh, the difference between speaking to uh, demons is over against speaking to the devil. Uh, my perception is that there is a solid biblical basis in the New Testament for binding Satan, as it were, through the binding of demons, casting them out of, of people. But uh, there really isn't much in the scripture that would, would give you any kind of an idea that, that, that we're to speak into the air, as it were, and speak to devils and demons, and or to run them out of buildings. There, there isn't any scriptural basis for it that I can find. But let's look at what I have found, and you make up your own mind as we go. Binding Satan is a biblical metaphor or a figure of speech which has a meaning in Scripture different from its conventional use in the church today, or at the practice that I've seen. The church has become, in my opinion, so flat spiritually and experientially that it's confused uh, saying things and the use of titles with the realities that these titles and sayings are supposed to, re uh, to represent. For instance, the act of bi binding Satan must be done as well as said. That is to say, I, to say I bind you, uh, as Jesus did in the New Testament, would, would require not only his words, but the works that accompany those words. That is to say, there has to be a reality in which demons are bound uh, as you speak. And that's uh, generated by what you see happening in the individual that the demons are residing. Let me put it in another context. For a teacher to come up before you and say, I teach you in Jesus' name, and then not do any teaching, would be absolutely incomplete. A, a prophet to say, I prophesy to you, and then sit down and wait, it hasn't prophesied at all. All he said is, I, I say I'm prophesying. Uh, to, a housewife that looks at a shirt and says, I iron you in the name of Jesus, and then doesn't iron it, is incomplete. So the sayings and the, and the activities have to correspond. There, there has to be a, a reality of something being ironed, or a, a teaching being taught, or a prophecy being communicated, in order for these things to have meaning. Now, I think the model that we need to look at is the model of Jesus himself. If we're going to study this business of binding the devil, we need to, we need to look at the activities of Jesus. And I'd like to begin today by looking at him casting out a demon, and it's referenced in Mark, the first chapter, verses 21 through 28. Let me read the passage to you. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Well, news about this and about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So here we see Jesus in action. He is speaking to a personality in a man and he speaks to it and, and casts it out, binds it as it were, breaks its power, looses the man and frees him from this contaminating personality, this demon that's there. And so we see a reality that's, that's based on uh, causality. Uh, something is said and a reaction occurs. Jesus speaks and a demon leaves. Uh, there's no question in anyone's mind that something's really occurred here. Now, in the Great Commission, we've been commissioned, in my opinion, to the words and the works of Jesus. We are to do what we see Jesus doing in this very passage. We're to cast out demons. But I want you to note that these demons are residing in a person here. Not in a building, not in rafters, not in a rug, but in a person. And he's casting them out. And so we need to recognize that the pattern in the New Testament, as, as here illustrated, is that Jesus cast demons out of real people. Now, the, the scripture that's cited often to support the idea of uh, speaking into the air, as it were, I bind you, Satan, is, is one that's referenced in the third chapter of Mark. And if you'll turn there, we'll, we'll look at that passage and, and see if that's what it means and if that's what it says. Scripturally, we do not bind Satan by saying, I bind you, Satan. We cannot use the Matthew 16 or 18 passages to support the idea. We looked at the binding and loosing passages last time. There's no model in Scripture of anyone saying to the devil, I bind you. Now, the one that's used to support the idea today in its current practice is this passage in, in the uh, Mark, the third chapter. So let's look at it and read it and see if that's exactly what it means. Mark 3, 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. Now, remember, parables are word pictures. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, of course, Jesus is defending himself in this context against the inroads of, the, uh, of his detractors that have said, in effect, that he's in cahoots with Beelzebub, and that's how he casts out demons. But the, the passage that's germane to our understanding right here is the sighting of the strong man's house. Now, again, it's metaphorical. What he's talking about is the kingdom of Satan. Satan has dominion over people, places, and things. That's his kingdom. That's his house. Jesus comes representing another kingdom. Those two kingdoms are in conflict. We've, we've dealt with this many times in other series that I've done here. And so the bottom line is you need to understand that there's war going on between two kingdoms. And Jesus, in, in uh, giving this, this word picture, as, it, as, you know, as a parable is, is, is giving you the idea that there's to be warfare between these two houses. Now, of course, he has come, the stronger of two men, and has bound the strong man. Satan is bound today. Oh, he's not completely rendered harmless. But uh, there's no question that he's much like a, a convict on, on death row. He's been, 
contained. Uh, there's a time yet in the future that his sentence will be culminated and he'll be disposed of for eternity. But for the moment, he's contained. And so you need to understand that, that uh, the binding of Satan has been done. Now it's left for you and I to take back the household's goods. That is to say, we're to go in and, uh, and repossess those people that are possessed by demonic presence, the minions of Satan. Satan's power then is curved, but not completely broken until such a time later in the future. Now, another evidence of this is found in the, in the passages dealing with the sending out of the 72. If you recall, they went out under the auspices of an initiation of Jesus. He sent them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and they did it. And they came back out of their minds. They were so excited because demons had obeyed them, and they said it to Jesus. Even the demons obey us. And Jesus responds, in effect, with, with this statement. Uh, he says in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you all authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. Now, what he's saying in this passage is that the, the church, in this case, the representatives of the church, the 72, which are part of the forerunners of the church, have been given the authority to interact with demonic presence and to bind and loose, to cast out demons wherever they find them. And so we need to understand that they are dealing at a, on a natural plane with supernatural beings. Demons, spirits, reside in people. We cast demons out of people. They're real people, but they have, and they have real demons, but the people are, made, are composite of body, soul, and spirit, and the demons are just spirit. So we cast those demons out. We're not casting them out of places. We're casting them out of people. And we do so because we've been authorized to do so. Moreover, most of us will never deal with Satan directly. We're dealing with his minions. But with the individual spirits or demons sent by Satan beneath them in the kingdom of darkness. We've been called then to interact with demons, not the devil himself. Now, another passage that, that gives further clarification to this whole issue where we see Jesus speaking on a natural plane, but there seems to be a supernatural dimension behind it. Remember the occasion in which uh, Jesus, in dialogue with, uh, with the apostles, has, has prophesied that he's going to go to, into Jerusalem and he'll be arrested there. And Peter is incensed by this, and he says, Not so, Lord, and begins rebuking the Lord. Now, this is a, a passage that's marked in, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter, verse 33. And after Peter's confession of Christ was revealed to him by a word of knowledge, that is to say, a gracelet of the Spirit, Peter's words to Jesus are seen as satanic in origin. He speaks at one time inspired by the Spirit. Remember, in the larger passage, he has, he has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he turns right around, as it were, and says, Not so, Lord, and rebukes the Lord for the things that the Lord is prophesying concerning himself. And so in the context of that rebuke, Jesus sees a malevolent force. He sees Satan behind Peter. And he speaks to Peter in this way. He rebukes the devil in Peter. You say, well, on the one hand, Peter's speaking under the auspices of the Spirit, and Jesus commends him for it. On the other hand, he's speaking to uh, Jesus under the auspices of the devil, and Jesus rebukes him for it. Well, there we see Jesus speaking directly, as it were, to the devil. But it's indirectly also, because it's to the devil through Peter. 
one of the interesting aspects of this is here's a man that's a believer that's following Jesus that's obviously operating under two kingdoms temporarily. He's being uh, swayed. On the one hand, he's getting the revelation of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, he's getting the revelation of the devil himself. In Mark's account, we're informed that Jesus rebuked Peter. This is the same word that Jesus has used in silencing demonic activity everywhere else in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark. So if there's anything to the use of the word, we've got to assume that he's talking, as it were, to a spirit, or possibly even to the devil himself that has caused Peter to say what he saw. Jesus saw the source of Peter's words and spoke against it. Jesus saw the, uh, in a moment, without warning, that Peter had, as it were, been influenced or invaded, I don't even know, because the scripture isn't clear at that point, by Satan's personality and, and, and the Peter is speaking for Satan as he tries to rebuke the Lord for what he's done. In a moment without warning, Peter has been invaded by Satan and spoke demonic wisdom. Now, this is, uh, I'm citing a passage here out of James 3.15 in which this kind of devilish wisdom is, is cited as being devilish in its source. The extent of the invasion, uh, we're not told. We don't know how he did it, and we don't know the degree to which he did it. All we know is that in this brief encounter, we see this incredible thing where on the one hand, Peter's speaking under the unction of the Spirit. On the other hand, he's speaking under the unction of the devil. It may be said that the same way in which the Spirit came to Peter and spoke through him is the same way in which Satan came to Peter. I don't know if we can draw that conclusion, but we need, at least need to put our, that thought you know, in the background because it's something that has to be weighed and thought through. Let's look at another aspect of this. Spiritual warfare, then, is to be fought on two planes, the, the natural and the supernatural. For instance, in the spiritual realm, it's to be fought by angels, in my opinion. There's to be cosmic warfare. Remember the occasion of Elisha and his servant in which they saw into the spirit realm? Now, this is cited in 2 Kings, the sixth chapter, verses 8 through 23. And in, on that occasion, we see Elisha and his servant, and suddenly the servant perceives in a way he'd never perceived before. When God gives visions, and I believe that that's what we're dealing with here, of what he's doing through our times of prayer in the spirit realm, they are phenomenological and not ontological in their nature. That is to say, they're, they're, they're something that is occurring in the way of phenomena that may not be an accurate representation of what's really going on. Uh, what this servant saw may have been inaccurate in one sense. We, we don't necessarily need to, to, to draw the conclusion that demons look like what he saw or that spirits look like what he saw. Uh, God gave him a picture. God gave him a phenomenological picture. But it may, may not be an accurate representation of what occurs. Now, I'm, I'm drawing that because I want to say this. In other words, God gives us pictures that make sense to us from our own limited field of experience. Ezekiel had an experience. Remember the wheel within a wheel? What does it mean? Well, commentators are still struggling with what he saw and what it meant. I don't know what it, he saw and what it meant. All I know is what's there in the way of word pictures. It meant something to Ezekiel. He understood entirely. But you and I are still struggling with the meaning of the passage, aren't we? Phenomenological means from the subjective vantage point by an individual observer or a group of observers. This is the way in which they, the viewer perceives things to be. When a person is outside and views the landscape, the world appears to be flat with a dome over it. This is a phenomenological viewpoint. 
Now, we know better than that because we've seen globes and we understand that the world, the world is generally oval in its shape. And we, uh, when we went into space, we got a picture of it, a picture we'd never had before in all the history of man. But when we're outside looking at it, it looks rather flat with a dome over the top of it. An ontological viewpoint, and by that we mean the way things actually are in themselves, would be to understand that the world is a sphere and it's not flat at all. God gives us phenomenological visions because we do not see things, nor can we yet understand things from God's infinite objective viewpoint. I suppose in eternity we'll know, even as the scripture declares in 1 Corinthians 13, that we'll uh, then see things in their fullness. But at this time we don't know. Our limited experience would not give us this, the means to interpret or make sense of us, of the, of the things we see, if we saw from God's perspective. This also means, however, that we cannot make doctrines out of the visualizations that God gives us in these experiences of visions and, 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 in, and in doing warfare. So it's difficult to, to, to cite a passage like this one that we've just cited and draw all kinds of theological implications out of it because of the phenomenological aspect of it. Some illustrations of this and of this issue are recorded as dreams and visions in the New Testament. For instance, Joseph concerning Mary, and, and then later the vision concerning Egypt, uh, Zechariah concerning John the Baptist, uh, Peter and the unclean animals uh, are, are used for direction and understanding and, and insight and instruction, and yet they are, they're not to be used as, uh, as passages for teaching that if you're going to have a vision, you must have it this way. Uh, that, by that I mean uh, every vision will correspond to the visions of the scripture. Visions, then, are given in a phenomenological way, and they're helpful, and they'll give us insight, but they're not necessarily to be used as the basis for teaching. Visions themselves are good, but the content of visions are given for the person personally, as over against for all people of all time that read the Scripture. Now, another way of viewing this warfare is on the natural level, by men and women in the human realm, preaching, praying, interacting with other people. And in that context, we've been given weapons, and the, these weapons are cited in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Let me read uh, a passage of Scripture to you, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the evil forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with uh, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of, the God, of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, this passage demonstrates that there are spiritual entities, principalities and powers, behind people. We will do warfare with those spiritual entities by dealing with practical human situations daily. And we'll do it by, first of all, learning all the defensive armament that's given us and then learning the offensive uh, tools of war that are given us. 
were given such things as the belt of truth. Now, this belt was used by the Roman soldier to tuck up his tunic, to, to keep himself together. It ensured him that he could fight unimpeded by a, a flowing garment not getting in his way. Another use of the belt was to hold his weapons, both his large and his small sword. Paul says the Christian uh, soldier's belt is truth. I think it means that uh, that which is truthful and honest is compared to deceitfulness and hypocrisy and phoniness. Now, we could go through each aspect of this uh, armament and look at it, and we will uh, at a later point in the program. But the bottom line at this point is that God has given us weaponry, and it's to be used in the natural realm. We do our fighting here, not up there. Angels do their fighting up there. We do our fighting down here. Let's look at the other aspects of the, of the armament and make some comment on them. For instance, the breastplate of righteousness that's referenced in Ephesians 6, uh, 14. The breastplate, contrary to some exposition, covered both the front and the back of the soldier. It was a major piece of equipment which protected his vital organs. In light of uh, Ephesians 4, 2, and 5, 9, where righteousness is used and clearly means righteousness of character and conduct, I believe it warrants the same meaning here in the sixth chapter. Paul intends for the Christian soldier to understand that his righteous character and conduct is that which protects his most vital parts. Simply, a Christian is most vulnerable to Satan where there is sin in his life. And when uh, we are righteous, which is uh, our day-to-day -day walk, Satan has no place to stab us, no way to get at us. One of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John is Jesus saying, here comes the, the prince of this world and he has nothing in me. I love that because that's exactly to be our testimony. We're to walk in righteousness, free of the interaction with the enemy, that he might not be able to make any inroads or any pathways into us through the, the, the result of sin that we've given ourselves over to. Let's look at another part of the armor, the boots. It's in re reference in verse 15. Here Paul has in mind the boot made for the Roman soldier, which was leather, in which the to toes with the toes free and heavy uh, studded soles. They, these were tied to his ankles with uh, straps and, and up, uh, up the ankles above onto the shins with ornamental straps that, that kept them on. These boots equipped him for long marches and gave him a solid stance. They also protected his shins, which were vulnerable in times of warfare. Remember, the enemy's number one deception is to bring fear against us. And one of the ways he makes us fearful is, is, to, uh, is to threaten to attack us in vulnerable places. This, this particular piece of equipment uh, is very, very helpful in that regard, in that the shins are very vulnerable. If you've ever been kicked in them, you know what I mean. Let's look at another one, the shield of faith, verse 16. The shield which Paul is picturing here is the larger of two shields which the Roman soldier used. It normally measured about four and a half feet high and about two and a half feet wide. It was a small door consisting of two layers of wood glued together and covered with leather. It was incredibly helpful for uh, defending them. They were able to kneel down behind it. They were able to lift it up in times in which uh, uh, things were being thrown at them. They were able to put it over their head when pitch was being thrown over the, the top of walls. There were many ways that it was used to protect them. It was a very, very important aspect of their protection. Now, he likens it to uh, protection when, uh, when fiery darts are being thrown at him by Satan. This shield of faith will keep the, the, the missiles thrown at us off of us. That's its primary value. And then last of all, the helmet of salvation, which is referenced in verse 17. This piece of equipment was usually made of a tough metal like bronze or iron. It often had a hinged visor, and was, uh, which added frontal protection. This was used to protect the, the, uh, the, the head 
from any kind of uh, injury. Now keep in mind that the head was the most vital portion of the body in that regard. And it's at the point of the head that the enemy attacks us most often. And that his, through his suggestions, through his deceits, through his denigrating statements to you and I, he often tries to stop us from any kind of uh, positive interaction with the Lord. Now the remaining uh, areas are the sword of the Spirit and the ability to pray in the Spirit. And these are the offensive weapons, the Word of God and the prayer that we're to be called to. And it's at the point of the Word, learning the Word and knowing it, and it's the point of learning to pray it, breathing it back to God, that you and I are to become the most effective.